week on the Emmaus Institute for Disciple Making Podcast. Ben and Lana Torah continue their series called Worshiping in Spirit and Truth by discussing liturgy. To begin, Ben gives a clarifying statement about this week's lesson. The word liturgy means many things to many people. It carries with it many connotations of high church services with either stodgy, stuffy formality or beautiful, inspiring grace, depending on your perspective. In the context that we're using it today, we're trying to discuss it in its largest, broadest possible definition as the story that the church tells during the gathering of the body, the service order, if you will. Sometimes it's wrapped around a church practice, such as communion, baptism, or a special holiday. Sometimes it encompasses strong exegesis of the Word of God. Either way, as we discussed in the last session, it's important for us as worshipers to understand the elements that the church is using to tell the story week in and week out. Each liturgy, each service order, tells us what the message means to the congregation and hopefully to the church at large. How the message is colored, the recitation of corporate prayer, public reading of scripture, congregational song, and a myriad of other practices that make up our church liturgies, they can help us to remember as well as emphasize the message of the gospel in a way that drives it deeper into our hearts as we walk out into a world that so opposes Christ. Today's class is all about deepening our understanding of how the way that we practice these things uh, today came about, albeit in a very brief flyover type way. Let me be clear as we start out. This is not to say that Emmaus Church or its leadership finds every historical practice to be of benefit, or conversely, that any practice that's not utilized by Emmaus on a regular basis is of little value. The point in discussing these things is to point out that these liturgies, these creative methods of telling the story of the gospel and instilling it in our hearts in a way that only corporate worship can do, are merely tools. If they're helpful, use them. If they aren't, don't. And if you aren't the one choosing which tool to use and which to discard, then the goal today is to help us learn not to idolize our own traditional liturgies or to demonize the traditions of others, but rather to learn from the ways that the church has told the gospel to itself throughout the ages and to try to learn as much as we can from them. The gospel is the main thing. Our goal as believers is to learn to tell it better, both to ourselves and to unbelievers. So we look to what we're doing now, what the church has done in the past, and try to develop new and different ways of communicating to the cultural context of the future through our liturgies. So, uh, just quick recap. Week one, um, we tried to specifically nail down the idea of, of worship in the sense of like the broadest sense of the term. What, what does it mean um, from a definition standpoint? How do we see it being utilized um, in, in the Bible? All of those kinds of things. Um, practical wisdom now as to um, what, it, what it means to live out a life of, of worship um, in every aspect of things. And I think because we, we specifically made point to delineate corporate worship from the idea of worship as a whole, um, and certainly even corporate worship from the idea of music, because all of those things, while associated and incorporated, um, it's, it's the, um, you know, all, all oaks are trees, not all trees are oaks kind of situation going on here. Um, 
our corporate worship and yes even our singing is worship but that's not all that it is there's much more to it so we tried to sort of narrow that down a little bit um, or broaden that out I suppose um, and then uh, last week we sort of took what could feel like a sidestep a little bit um, some some of you weren't here so I'll try to give a little bit of a recap um, from that uh, hope camp went well by the way um, I, I saw lots of pictures and it looked like it did I was only slightly jealous um, so, um, but, but basically took what could have felt like a sidestep and looked at the idea of storytelling from the perspective of, um, when you, when you approach a situation, whether it's, you know, popular culture, like a, a movie or a, or a story, even something as inane as, uh, the three little pigs, things like that. We'd like, there is a structure and a, and a trajectory to the story. Um, there's a, you know, wonderful classic example of like an outline for those kinds of things, mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure if you've ever taken a theater or a literature class or anything like that, you know um, the, the pyramid or the, the mountain diagram. Um, there's, a, there's a point that starts things, there's conflict and rising action and things get complicated until it reaches the highest point of interest or uh, suspense or passion or excitement or something, and then there's a transition or a resolution that comes, that brings the action back down to a place of equilibrium, um, and uh, if not complete, tie it up with a bonus, at least um, you realize that the episode that you've been talking about has come to a conclusion and you can move, move forward from there. Um, so we, we tried to sort of liken that idea to what we do in corporate worship. Um, we, if you, if you are truly honest about what storytelling is, it's the communication of an idea or a message through sometimes a, fic, a fictional, but not always, um, a fictitious uh, tale or explanation or example. Um, and even in, in the most basic stories, you find morals or lessons or at least a main idea like... You know, we, we tell a story about how we went to, um, I don't know, I've, I've never done this, so it's kind of outside of my realm of uh, experience, but go to Hawaii for a vacation or something like that, and you describe the mountains and the ocean and all of this stuff, and you tell this really long story, and the whole point of the story was not that anything specific happened, just that Hawaii's gorgeous, and I had fun, right? Like, so, so those kinds of builds and stories and even uh, the chronological telling of something or the spatial telling of something, um, it has a point. There's a reason we're always trying to communicate a message. And so at that level, looking at what we do when we gather um, as the body of Christ is on one level, um, and I think it's a pretty high-functioning level, we're just telling each other stories. Not in a fictitious way, but in the sense that we gather together to tell each other the story of the gospel week in and week out. Mm -hmm. We gather together to adore God for what he's done in a corporate setting because at my home and in my own private time and study and experience and reflection, I can look at who God is and I can respond to that. But when I hear how that happens with you and with you and with you and with you, it changes my perspective because I see more of this story. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we come together to help one another adore God better, 
we come together to um, to grow ourselves, to learn those parts of your story and the and further parts of the the story of the gospel as explained by a pastor or teacher, so that we can continue to grow. And then, lastly, we perhaps not lastly, but third, we talk about um, edifying one another. There's an outward action as well. It's not all just vertical. There's also a horizontal level to that storytelling, to that message sending, is that I'm here to actively help you, and I'm here to actively help you and you, and my experience can be of some benefit, not because of who I am, but because of the grace that God's given me to to live um, in His grace. Um, So there's this this beautiful um, story-driven idea. When we come together, there's always a point. Um, even if we don't go into the storytelling knowing what it is, there's always a point. There's always something about God. Um, I don't know that this is the an exactly perfect translation or, or application of, of this passage, but Scripture says and, and God tells us that his word will never return to him void. It won't ever return to him empty. Um, it's never pointless when the word of God is spoken. And so on some level, as we gather together and speak the word of God in actual text or an example or an experience, there's never no point, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our, our whole corporate experience is one of storytelling. And that's, what, that's why I'm really excited about this week, because we, we have gone from what is, what is worship and then this idea of storytelling, and then in the corporate gathering... I think there's there's vast evidence about uh, that this is part of who we are and, and how we're created. Um, we bring the idea of worshiping together through sending messages to one another into a into a structured setting where we creatively and sort of artistically present those stories as passionately and as um, effectively as we can to one another. And that essentially is where um, our modern idea of what a a church service looks like or a church gathering looks like comes from. Um, And we'll dive into some of that as well. But essentially, today we're talking about sacred artistry in the church. Um, The historical perspective essentially on how we look at communicating stories to one another with creativity. Um, The beginning of scripture is the example of God speaking the world into being. He, he declares himself from Genesis 1 as a God who is creative, as a God who, by his very nature, brings other things into existence. And then if you take the gospel message in, um, at, at its best and at, at its most literal, you find a God who not only creates new things, but then makes new things out of the dead things that used to be new things. Um, in us, right? He, he ushers the world and our existence uh, into place. We rebel. There's the sin. There's sin in the fall. We are dead in trespasses and sins, the way that the the scripture tells us. And then the story of redemption is that God brings that back to life. So there's this overwhelmingly creative aspect um, to who God is in and of Himself. Um, but then you see um, lots of examples of that even in the way that he declared himself to be, um, or, or that he asked, 
his people to worship him and to, to respond to him, to, to emulate him in, in some ways. Um, I'm a little ahead of myself with that liturgy slide. Um, uh, but we look at the example of the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple and how um, throughout uh, the, the Pentateuch there's this description and, and um, all of the laws and the rules about how the temple was supposed to be uh, run and what everyone was supposed to wear and what it was supposed to be made out of and how big everything was supposed to be. All of these, you, you start to see all of these pictures being formed. And we talked a little bit about this um, in week one, but when Christ shows up, you start to see um, not only the spoken prophecies about who he would be and what he would do being fulfilled, but then him walking through all of these steps in and around Jerusalem and the temple and, and seeing these pictures of who he um, was even foretold to be through the way that the temple was structured. We sort of talked about the, the idea of um, on, uh, on Palm Sunday when he rides the donkey through Jerusalem and they're praising him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Um, and then he ends up at the steps of the temple, um, and all of these people are, are cheering and calling out his name. And as uh, the specific hour um, arrives, the, the, I believe the sun is peeking over the temple. There's uh, noise or, or it's, uh, the sounding of horns, things like that. And Christ stands at the base of the temple and says, uh, I'm, I am the, the water, I am the light of the world, I am these things, I am the Messiah, I am come, all that kind of stuff. So you see even the, the visual picture of the temple meant something. There's this overwhelmingly creative idea um, behind it. So for us, that sort of leads us into the idea of, of how, how we got to where we are and how we can continue, continue to worship God in a creative fashion ourselves um, and follow that example. Um, so I want to introduce a, a term um, because we'll use it a lot today. Um, please don't be afraid of it. It's not, it's a little out of context for us most of the time, um, but it's, it's something that we'll become very familiar with and I think um, means a lot less and a lot more perhaps than, than what we think it does. Um, but I want to talk about the idea of, of a liturgy. Um, uh, so point one here, liturgy, the cross between spiritual practice, church function, and creativity. Um, the definition of the word liturgy, um, if you look it up, uh, um, the, the good old Google search for the definition brings up a form or formulary according to which public religious worship, especially Christian worship, is conducted. So it's talking about the form or the formula, the way that things are put together. Um, it, the, the actual word itself comes from some words that essentially, as you see on the screen, lead us to the meaning, the work of the people. Um, and that's an, it's an interesting concept because it's that, that definition in even of itself is, is a corporate idea, right? When we get together as believers, we're not just participants or excuse me, not participants. We're not just, um, observers. It's not the work of the clergy. It's not the work of the pastor. It's not the work of, um, you know, the people up there on the stage with them guitars. It's <laughs> the work of the people in the church. It's something that we come together to do corporately together. Um, so that that carries forward as, as we're going. Um, the, the practical example or the practical definition of that for me um, 
it's just a story. When we talk about liturgy from here on out, we're talking about how we communicate um, in, in an artistic or a creative manner, but how we use our gatherings to communicate messages to one another. And this has a lot of historical context, which we'll sort of get into in a second. Um, so the practical application of liturgy for us is that liturgy is, is spiritual instruction. The order that we put things in and how it, the things that we fill all of those imaginary slots in the story with, like if we were to fill out a form or one of these diagrams for a church service or a gathering, um, the way that we put all that together is, is intended to be informative. It's intended to be instructional. Um, liturgy is a is a function uh, is is functional organization. How do we how are we going to structure what we do when we get together? Um, and there's plenty of place for non-structured time for the church to to gather in scripture. But um, when we come together, do we just sit around and what do we do? We're here now. How do we effectively serve one another? How do we continue to challenge one another? How do we help each other grow? Those kinds of things that it, it becomes a functional um, or, or a function of our organization. How do we, how do we put all those things together and work, work together? Um, and the liturgy is creative corporate worship. Um, it's something that is, um, it's, it's spiritual, it's functional and it's creative. We, we come together as um, a body of believers and we want to do again the, the spirit and truth side of things. We've talked about the knowledge aspect of it, that function, the um, the organizational aspect, and then the truth of it is the creative, or excuse me, the spirit of it is the creative side. Um, how can we magnify the Lord together, um, as the psalmist calls? So um, we talk through that uh, literature. Uh, excuse me, liturgical form. Uh, in the church, throughout church history, um, the story. First of all, um, obviously we're, I'm drawing a little bit of a, a larger arc here to, to include this under the church, um, but technically, depending on your theological standpoint, there is a difference between the way that Israel worshipped and the way the church worships, or there isn't, depending on which camp, camp that you um, sort of land in. But I'm essentially talking about creative corporate worship. Um, the Jews did it a long time before we did it um, as believers. And they did it by order of God himself. And we've already talked a little bit about how um, when they came out of uh, Egypt and there was this command to create something that would allow them to worship God together. Um, obviously, we have that glorious and wonderful um, golden calf experience that they went through because, you know... Um, I won't get into all the reasons why because I haven't studied it recently and I don't want to misspeak. Um, but essentially the, the concept of like, there was a void there. I like, we want to worship something, whether that was a false God or whether it was a, it was an icon of the true God, um, modeled after sort of Egyptian, um, ways of worshiping regardless God didn't like it it wasn't a good thing um, and so he told them eventually to build the tabernacle and there's this there's this traveling representation of, of relationship with God if you are a member of the Jewish nation the people of Israel you can worship within these walls you can come you can meet God in this in this form and fashion. If you are of a certain set-apart holy tribe, you can come within this 
section of the tabernacle and the temple. Um, and if you were a member of the priestly uh, order in a certain level, you, then you can go within deeper. And then once a year, the Holy of Holies can be breached by the, by the, uh, the high priest with a lot of um, detail and a lot of uh, fanfare involved in that, in, in so much that like if you got it wrong at all, the penalty was death. So there's this huge amount of um, attention to detail uh, in the way that the tabernacle and the, eventually the way that the temple was built um, and, and what that communicated about God. Um, and then, again, another like parallel to the idea of how um, even that function or that form um, shows us what Christ was like. You go back to the, the rending of the, uh, the curtain between the rest of the temple and the Holy of Holies. Um, Christ dies on the cross, it's finished, the earthquakes and the veil between um, the, the rest of the temple and the Holy of Holies is, is torn and suddenly pictorially and um, in, in actuality we have access as believers to the Father directly as opposed to going through the sacrificial system and all of those kinds of things. So again, it, <laughs> this would... This would be a doctoral thesis in and of itself if we went into all of the details and pulled out all the points. Um, but it's very clear that the way things were done, um, the work of the people and the work of um, the, um, the priests and, and uh, all of the people involved around the temple and the tabernacle is very important um, in a picture, pictorial sense to, to God. Um, and that is seen all throughout the Old Testament. Then we get to the New Testament, and we've seen all of that sort of um, the resolution, or the I mean, even as Christ says in Matthew, um, not the abolishment of the law, but the completion of the perfection of the law and the perfection of that system. Um, the he dies on the cross, um, resurrects from the dead. Um, and then after spending a little bit of time with his disciples, ascends into heaven, and the church age has begun in a big way. Um, so you, we, we want to sort of follow the development of how the church worshipped from there on out. Um, you start in pre-canon early church, like before scripture was finished. Um, and you see examples in Acts about them coming together and... Um, bearing one another's burdens in, in the way of um, helping one another with financial and uh, illnesses and all those kinds of things. There's the, the passage that, that speaks to the fact that they, they gathered together daily um, and devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, um, the apostles' teaching, and to prayer. This communal everything is about um, the work of, of learning more about who Jesus is, what he's done, and what we should do now um, in that sort of Jerusalem centralized um, community, that, that first um, church from, uh, that came from Pentecost. Um, and there's, there's not much record about what they did when they gathered other than that. They were listening to teaching. They were taking care of one another. They were sharing hospitality. They were breaking bread together. They were praying together. All of those, all of those things. It's not a super defined form, um, but the emphasis was on learning about who God was and taking care of each other. It was, again, that vertical and horizontal that we've talked about a lot. Um, liturgy began um, in these moments, um, if, if you take it in the loosest sense of liturgy as storytelling, 
Liturgy began, began as a tool to teach, initiate, and edify believers in the words of the apostles as Christianity migrated from a religion entrenched in Judaism to a religion described in the, develop, in the developing writings of the apostles as they continued to learn um, th then how their worship was developing um, came along as well. And then um, we move, once the canon of scripture is completed, we're still in that uh, missionary phase where Paul and Peter and all of them are, are sort of going out and doing all of those things. But once we, once we find the completion of the canon of scripture, um, liturgy then, liturgy or the storytelling, the way that the church worshiped together started to develop in a way that um, unified and, and combated heresy by creating a certain level of uniformity and agreement on the major tenets of the gospel gleaned from the now completed and agreed upon canon of scripture. So, um, again, without going into all of the detail, you start to see the um, councils meeting and the different churches from all over where um, Paul and the other missionaries had, had planted um, city churches and house churches in, in these various areas um, coming together to talk about, well, what do we believe? What do we really think is true? What do we really think is um, important? Um, because with something as widely spreading as Christianity, um, history tells us that there was very quickly other groups that popped up that said, well, this is what I believe about, uh, about Jesus. And, and it was wildly opposed to what became the canon of Scripture. One of the biggest examples of this um, it, are, are the Gnostic Gospels. Um, um, and without going into everything that they believed, it was, it was heretical. Um, it was a certain level of pulling away from, from the divinity of Christ and some of his major, major teachings about, about himself and about uh, relationship with God and all of these kinds of things. And, and it became a huge issue. Even in, even in um, Galatians, you see Peter and Paul kind of head, you know, square off against um, what Paul and Peter would both claim as the gospel and the way that the Judaizers, um, as they're described in, in Galatians, um, are doing business. Basically, um, once the Gentiles start becoming believers, um, there's a certain group of Jews that say, no, 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 you, you can't just believe in Jesus. You have to also follow the law. You have to also be circumcised. You have to also do all of these things. And, you know, Paul and Peter sort of have a little bit of a slight confrontation um, there because Peter starts to sort of give place to them a little bit out of deference and Paul says no 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 that's not what we do in 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 the Christianity that we have both agreed on that's not how this goes um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that begins to form um, just out of the need for uniformity um, some of the earliest creeds and some of the earliest um, councils that we see developing about even even about what should and shouldn't be part of the canon of scripture um, they come out of the necessity of unifying all of these churches and making sure that um, you know heresy isn't proclaimed as truth um, and that how how do you organize that how do you how do you structure that in a way um, when you're trying to sort of work through a global phenomenon of, of the, the spread of Christianity and then, and then these sects that pop, pop up. So there's a, a huge emphasis on starting to create um, unifying factors that, that 
propound the truth of the gospel, that, that forward the things that are true and, and ignore the things or, or intentionally push aside the things that aren't. Um, and then we go into the era when after lots and lots of persecution and all of these various uh, groups popping up, um, Christianity becomes the official or, the, or at least the legalized religion within the Roman Empire. Um, and, you know, we're talking about vast amounts of time um, in a lot of these categories, but um, you start to see the development of the church as sort of being officially adopted by a governing body, like like the Roman Empire, the, the emperor. Um, it's very commonly known as uh, Constantine um, taking, the, taking the church and sort of making it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so there's, there's another, like, establishment of we're all going to believe the same way. Um, and that is a good thing in the sense that some of the, pers some of the perse persecution backed off in, in some senses. Um, but then now you have a political body at least influencing the church, if not running it. Um, so liturgy evolved uh, during this era as Christianity, its sacraments and tenets, and the church itself became legalized, then embraced, then championed, then enforced on the population. Uh, the dual purposes of teaching and adoring God alongside enriching the church and consolidating power established the church and its rights as the undisputed voice of God. So we start to see like what was intended with creating some of this uniformity um, then when the, the, Roman, the Roman government takes over, it becomes a little bit more of a, it can become a little bit more of a power play. Um, what do we do to control the masses of people, um, especially as Roman and these other um, groups were trying to establish control uh, in the government over things, uh, over all of these different people that were um, pagans outside of, of Christianity. Um, it becomes eventually a, a bit of a power play, and this is not just hearsay, this is history. Like if you remember your high school history or college history, this is, this is stuff that we remember and is common, common knowledge. Um, so then it moves, there, moves from, from that place as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Eventually the Roman Empire um, devolves and falls, but Christianity remains uh, a very predominant religion um, in Europe. Um, and this, at this point, we sort of migrate from a practice of instruction to a practice of ritual. It's, it's almost gotten mixed in, like the way that the church functioned. Um, and during the, medieval, during the, the Dark Ages, you sort of, we see a lot of this in the writings of the day and things that, things that come out of it, um, mostly through monasteries and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of mythology and there's a lot of folklore that gets mixed in with the Bible. And if you think about it for a second, it, do, it makes perfect sense because in this era, there is virtually no, um, there's virtually no literacy. Almost the entire population is completely illiterate, poverty-stricken. Um, the feudal system is this huge thing about certain families having lots and lots of power and influence and money and everybody else being dirt poor and, and serving them, subsistence farming being the main way that people even survived. And then you take those that that like feudal lord system and combine it with religious control 
and suddenly you have really powerful dioceses and, and church bodies exhibiting sort of the same control over the lords that the lords are existing over the people. Um, and so a lot of that, a lot of the things that used to be teaching, especially once you start to see Latin not be um, the language of the people anymore, because when, when the scripture was originally translated into Latin, it was translated into Latin and all of the masses and all of the, the liturgies were in Latin because everybody understood it. And then eventually when the Roman Empire falls and all of these separate governments and their individual countries' languages start to become more prominent, the liturgies stayed in Latin because that was the religious or mystical thing to do. Like it was, it had risen to the point, it had risen in power to the point of being almost untouchable. And so colloquial church like languages and the, the church, ser the idea of a church service in um, a language other than Latin was unfathomable because that was what the church had always done. Um, and so that lack of literacy and all those kinds of things, it, it's, it's no longer a teaching tool. Um, the, the forms and functions of the church going through, it's, it's, all, it's just ritual. Um, now that doesn't mean that there was no truth existing. I'm not trying to, like, I'm not necessarily trying to completely um, obliterate all of the teachings of the Catholic Church, but I am saying that on some level, that ritual focus became the only way that, that the scripture was, was propagated until um, the Protestant Reformation. Um, and in the Protestant Reformation, um, we see sort of a wake-up call on some levels to the church. Now, I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that everything suddenly got better immediately as soon as the Protestant Reformation happened. There's a lot of stuff to work through historically after that. But it does provide a bit of a wake-up call that says, no, I should be able to read the scripture in my language and know what God wants me to do. You're not the one that should tell me this. The 95 Theses, yay, burning at the stake, lots of bad things happen. Um, there's this religious upheaval that says the people should have access to it, which... Again, if we go back to the idea of gathering as a body of believers in the first place, that was the whole point. Dedicate ourselves to the teaching of the scripture, to understanding what, what Christ said and what he wanted for us. It was never about, power is never about um, even religiosity or spiritualism. It was about relationship with God. Um, so the Protestant Reformation provides a very slow-moving catalyst to breaking the universal power of the establishment of the church and bringing the focus of relationship with God as a growing individual practice or back to being a growing individual practice aided by the church um, and its gatherings rather than a life lived as um, it would have been lived all of the days of the week but then purified by access to the church and its rituals and its rites. So it, it suddenly very slowly starts to move back towards, no, 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 we're helping each other grow. We're not just being told that we're horrible people and the church can make you better. Um, and that's a huge reduction of the entire Middle Ages and then the <laughs> Reformation. But th does that make sense? Like, so we've established there was nothing in the apostolic era. In, like right after Christ leaves, there's, there's no form, there's no other than what they knew from 
Judaism and the rabbinical systems and like going to the synagogue and those kinds of things that there was nothing there for them. And slowly, as an attempt to make sure that we all affirm the truth about the gospel rightly, we start to see these forms and functions develop, which eventually get turned into a rite and a ritual that is devoid of, um, of spirit and of passion because it's all just very the way that it's always been. Um, and again, this is an incredibly slow process after the Protestant Reformation. In fact, I'm sure we can all talk about how we're still dealing with some of the ramifications of, of the shift from um, the church being oppressive to the church as a whole being an attempt to grow the individual believers into likeness with Christ. Um, our own country's history um, is an example of this. We, you know, we talk, we, we tout all the time that, you know, the, the pilgrims came over for religious freedom, but then continued to persecute lots and lots of people for <laughs> the several hundred years that we've been here. So it's not been a perfect road by any stretch of the imagination, um, but there there are those things to deal with. The Protestant denominations were certainly not immune to the temptations of a grab for power and control over the lives of the parishioners, um, but there's there's a shift there, um, and so that brings us um, sort of to the I'll get back to that in a second to the early modern era, and here we're left with a rich legacy of church right, practice, and rhythm to choose from and incorporate into our lives outside of the influence of a globally controlling church body. So let me unpack that for a second. I painted a pretty bleak picture about what the forms of um, the Catholic Church, particularly in the medieval era, looked like. Um, and then even after the Protestant Reformation, we, you know, we talked about that not always being um, just an instantaneous change. But even throughout the Protestant Reformation, you see lots of Protestant den denominations continuing the practice of this sort of high church liturgical form. Mm -hmm. When you gather together, you sing this song, you say this prayer, you do this thing, you do this thing, you do this thing. Um, even through, uh, through the same period of time after the Protestant, Protestant Reformation and all of that, the Catholic Church follows the, the Latin liturgy form. Um, sometimes they get translated into English or German or French or whatever so that, that those Protestant denominations can continue to, to use the passages of Scripture and things like that. Um, backing up slightly, when you look at Latin liturgy, a lot of it is just passages of Scripture in Latin. A lot of it is uniform prayers that are developed that we, um, we all say together because they're common uh, things that we can all commonly agree on, those kinds of things. It, the form of a service became... We sing this, we read this, we do this. If you look at the, the Mass Ordinary, um, there's a very, it's again, it's a storytelling tool. It's a very strict movement from one aspect to the other that culminates in, in Eucharist, that culminates in the essentially what we would, we would term the taking of the Lord's Supper, um, communion. Uh, and, and all of those details and pieces were meant to lead to that as the, climac uh, the climactic moment of, of the service. Um, same thing happens in in uh, in high church liturgies from Protestant denominations. You have the same kind of Eucharist, the same kind of uh, high form when it comes to um, uh, weddings and, and 
christenings and all these kinds of things. There's a lot of there's a lot of form that's intended to be used um, as a teaching tool or as a function for continued spiritual spiritual growth. Um, some of those functions um, in are, are seen in the Catholic sacraments. Um, the idea of Eucharist or, or communion, um, baptism, confirmation, reconciliation, anointing of the sick, marriage, holy orders. Don't want to go through all of them individually, but essentially there's this heritage of form and ritual that goes along with um, largely what we would consider good teaching tools. Now, we, as Protestants, we don't agree that all of these are essential, um, typically, um, but there's that form exists. Um, so liturgy in the con contemporary era, a lot of it ends up being uh, things like um, while we while we work through knowing what to do, there's sort of this high church versus low church mentality um, that seems to pervade. So uh, Anglican churches, um, some Methodist churches, um, Episcopalian. Episcopalian churches, those kinds of things. <clears throat> now we would have doctrinal differences theoretically um, between this church and, Episcop and an Episcopalian church. But oftentimes, I, and this, some of this is my opinion, but I think that the differences between high church and low church denominations, not only theologically, but also organizationally, has created this us versus them mentality when it comes to the, the inclusion of a, lot, a wide array of liturgical forms. Again, if we go back to the idea of liturgy being a teaching tool, um, then we've got you know, a couple thousand years of teaching tools that because that's a high church denomination that doesn't agree exactly the same um, way, that, or believe exactly the same way that I do about A, um, then everything that they practice is uncomfortable or awkward or weird, right? So there's this big, like, us versus them mentality. And I think we've, most of us can say that we've experienced that on, on some, some level, um, if, if you've gone anywhere other than the same church that you grew up in for, the, for your entire life. Um, and I think that's, that's the second aspect, is that isolation versus uh, ecumenism kind of idea. Like, we tend mm -hmm. to stick where we're comfortable um, and thereby miss out on some of the teaching tools that exist from, again, those 2,000 years of history. Now, just because... I think this is important to say. Just because um, the church throughout history wasn't always right doesn't mean that they were always wrong either. Um, there's, and there are some people that would disagree with me when I say that. Um, I very firmly believe that if something is truth, we should use it. We should sing it. We should, if it's the truth, let's affirm it. Right? If the Bible says it, go for it. You know, kind of, kind of thing. Um, whereas there's a lot of um, people who would who would disagree based on things that um, associations with certain denominations or certain ideas or certain opinions, um, but that that kind of um, teaching tool and, and and memory device, if you will, we we cast it off because it, it just there's slight dif differences. We're not we're often not willing to um, to go outside of our comfort zone. Um, so liturgy in the contemporary era deals with high church versus low church traditions, isolation versus ecumenism, um, doctrine versus tradition. We're often unable to separate 
the differences in doctrinal statement from differences in church polity and function. The things that we would definitely disagree with theologically are the things to hold on to, and who, who and how communion gets offered is probably not one of those things. Um, you know, if we're talking about like, should you pass the plates with the little cups and the little plat and the little metal rings that we all grew up with if you went to a Baptist church, or like grape juice people, grape juice, <laughs> grape juice, um, or like Emmaus does the taking the piece of bread and dunking it in the um, in the grape juice. Some people, yeah, <laughs> some people take <laughs> so, some people take the uh, take a loaf of bread and pass it down like, and then a, a big communal cup and all this kind. Of, are are we really going to separate? ourselves based on the open-handed issue things just because it's slightly outside of our comfort zone um i would submit that if it's truth we should embrace it um and we can talk a lot about that i'm sure um and then we tend to go uh we tend to deal with the ideas of what's comfortable versus what is growing um we're missing out on a lot of rhythms and liturgical ideas that have benefited the church throughout the church age um the the liturgies or the rhythms or the the practices even even the when you look at something like the mass okay i don't agree theologically with a lot of what um what the catholic church would present as being modern practice i'm a protestant that seems to make sense um but when you see the way that there's a certain amount of reverence that's taken there's clear movement from um, the ideas presented in scripture to create a picture of of holiness and awe and and growth um, and then culminating in the taking of the Lord's Supper there's something to be there's something to be gleaned from that we're reminded by something uh, we're reminded of the gospel in a clear and accurate way when we can do some of those things there are a lot of those kinds of um, I hesitate to use the word ritual, but but methods of doing things that that the church has come up with throughout the ages that are, they're not steeped in untruth, if that makes sense, right? There's a lot of stuff that we can learn um, from people that don't exa- don't agree exactly the same way that we do, um, or don't believe exactly the same way that we do, um, that we often cast aside because we're just unfamiliar with it or, or uncomfortable with it on that level. Um, there are a lot of these rhythms. There are a lot of these liturgies. Um, this is a smattering of a few. Um, there's a great book um, that I have in my backpack, I believe, um, that sort of takes you on a journey with some of this. It's a fairly new book. Um, I'm not. I'm not entirely decided on whether or not I feel super in agreement with everything that he says or not. So take it with a grain of salt. But this was a very enlightening book for me, um, written by Aaron Nequist. It's called The Eternal Current. Um, Aaron was a worship pastor at um, Willow Creek for a long time um, and ended up forming this sort of like a secondary service at the church. It was a function of the church called The Practice. Um, And it was essentially... He did exactly sort of what we're talking with on a, on a bit of an experimental level. He would he would research um, rhythms or liturgies or um, 
pictures that had been used in the past and he would put them into a service. There's a really interesting um, couple of albums on Spotify. I assume it's on um, uh, on Apple Music and stuff like that as well. But he, it's it's basically a recording of one of the liturgies from the practice. And there is this reading of the corporate reading of scripture. There's corporate prayer um, where they recite things back to each other. There's musical interludes between everything and themes that are, that they sing back to one another and prayers led by one person and this just this moving, interesting, interconnected, very artistic um, progression through an idea. Like each one is labeled something like um, uh, the goodness of God or um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on some of the names of the um, things. Uh, blessed to be a blessing. Uh, creation, Lord have mercy. God is love. Here are my hands. Lament. So just a couple of, they're just like services sort of based around the scriptures that deal with some of these, um, some of these things. Um, really fascinating. It's called the New Liturgy. I think, I think is what it's called. Yes, a new liturgy. If you want to look those up, it's it's a little unusual. It's not. It's certainly not an Emmaus service broadcast out, <laughs> but it's interesting, um, and it's it's something to be impacted by. I think um, so. This book has a lot of these kinds of rhythms and things like that described, and he sort of goes into what he feels about how we can learn from historical liturgy and all that kind of stuff. It's a really fascinating book. Um, take a look at it if you will. Um, but some of the rhythms that the church has used, the, the first two we consider as Protestants to be sacramental, um, like essential. These are, the, these are the only two of the seven Catholic sacraments that, um, or, that we call ordinances um, that the, the Protestant church really holds to as being an essential part of spiritual life. Um, so you have communion um, and baptism, both being very clearly communicated in Scripture as being part of... Um, part of what God expects for us. Um, and then the rest of these tend to be rhythms or practices that, that the Bible encourages us to continue to participate in. So prayer, both organized and spontaneous, um, there's a lot that can be learned from collections of prayers. Like there's some amazing stuff. Um, Valley of Vision is a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. If you've ever read anything from here, it's so beautifully written um, and poignant and deep just there's some really good stuff in Valley of Vision. Um, even things like um, the Book of Common Prayer, which is used a lot in like Anglican churches and things like that. Um, you, you know, you have to, as with any of these resources, as with any of these ideas, you you take what you see and you compare it to Scripture. And if it's truth, then you can use it. And if it feels like it's untrue, you do some more study, find out for yourself whether or not you believe it's, it's true or not, and then use it or don't use it. Um, but again, they're all tools. So some of the things in the Book of Com Common Prayer can be really helpful. Um, really all of these, I mean, I've, I had a college professor, he was talking more about hymnals than anything else, but I think this applies to prayer. Um, a lot of the reformers talked about um, corporate singing being a corporate prayer, um, essentially. So the individual expressions of local churches, um, collecting the prayers that we use, um, sometimes spontaneous is spontaneous prayer or prayer in the moment is certainly helpful, but there, there are some beautiful moments that happen when we pray together. 
um, whether it's to music or whether it's not, you know, all the things that are read uh, on the screen. Um, there's a particular uh, a particular prayer practice that has become a lot more popular recently called the Examined. Um, Saint Ignatius, way back in the day, um, brought this this idea of coming to the end of the day and really doing what it sounds like, examining the day through this particular form. And it's not, there's nothing spiritually inspired about it other than the fact that it's helpful. Um, to pause at the end of your, of your day and have a form to go through. How many of you have ever gotten down on your knees at some point during the day and said, I have no idea what to say now? <laughs> right, like that awkward moment where I, I'm supposed to pray now, but I don't know what to do. Stuff like this gives you something to work through. Um, another really great one is like praying through the scripture. That's, that's a, a rhythm or a, a liturgical form in a, in a sense um, for private, corp, private or corporate worship. We pray this, the scriptures back to one another and to ourselves. Um, uh, confession, both private and public, um, is historically such a huge aspect of who we are as believers. Like conf the confession of sins to God is obviously important, but when we've wronged one another, the Bible over and over talks about confessing those sins to each other. I'm not sure that any of us want to like, you know, jump up on the stage on a Sunday morning and start shouting all of the bad things that we did over the course of the week. <laughs> but there is a certain place where confessing our sins to one another is incredibly helpful and, and um, formative spiritually. Um, Stuff uh, that we do it stuff that we do at the corporate gathering. Um, the way we conduct the corporate gathering is important. Um, on on the local church level, like what we do moment to moment. Um, again, what we would sort of traditionally consider to be a liturgical form or a, a storytelling venue or opportunity. What we do uh, in our homes, private hospitality kind of things. Um, Catechism is sort of a, a, a charged term depending on how you grew up, but it just means like study or a certain um, set of questions that we ask ourselves to, to f create the foundation of, of our beliefs. And so um, uh, there's a, what was the? New City. New City. The New City Catechism is a really cool thing to look up. Tim Keller um, and some people that he worked with created um, sort of a, a catechism that works a lot with our Protestant kind of way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. um, really beautiful. I used them at school for a little while, not not long, just a little while. Um, those are, are really those cool. Those the ones that have like John Piper in them. Yes, and stuff? yes. Oh, I remember. Yes. That. Yeah, um, we used them for some assemblies at some point. But again, that who um, who is God? God is you know, and, and the the call and response kind of things yeah. that a lot of us learned as kids. Mm -hmm. um, What's the, what's the duty of man, the whole duty right. of man, you know, the whole thing. Um, there's a lot of credos, um, a lot of creeds that have been written. A lot of us probably know, like, the Apostles' Creed or, you know, things like that. Those, those kinds of statements, when affirmed together, can be really powerful tools of memory and, and, and help. Um, systematic theologies, even to a certain degree, like, going into the details of what who God says that he is and trying to work all that out um, corporately or individually those kinds of things um, a rhythm that we that we sort of set off to the side a lot um, but probably shouldn't I've been a lot really convicted about it um, recently is the idea of Sabbath um, taking taking a time to separate ourselves um, from the cares and concerns of the world um, to focus on 
spiritual formation and to focus on our families, those kinds of things, to find rest. Um, there's a huge um, sort of up, uptick in, in response, response to that idea of fasting. Um, even, you know, in the sick, what we do with um, taking care of um, the poor in our areas, I use the term philanthropy that seems a little sterile, but you, you know what I mean? Like working with, working with people, outreach to the poor, those kinds of things. Um, our, our dedication of children, we're not um, even, and this is cool because Emmaus actually has, this is the one area that we are the most liturgical yeah. in. Um, how many of you have ever been at one of the baby dedications at Emmaus, right? Okay, so that is one of the most form-based mm-hmm. things that we do around here. And it's yeah. always so fascinating because it, it seems so, I don't know about you, my experience of that is it seems so unifying mm-hmm. and so connecting. Um, there's a whole litany of questions that get asked and we as the congregation have to respond to them. Um, basically partnering with these parents that are bringing forth their children to symbolically dedicate um, to the Lord and um, our, you know, agreeing to help parent these children and help mm-hmm. raise these children in the, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's just some beautiful, it's a beautiful unifying moment. It's, I wish we did, honestly, I wish we did a little bit more of that kind of stuff. It's really, um, it's challenging. Um, I know this is, has nothing to do with church, but um, um, I've been to two or three funerals recently um, where the, um, the person who had passed away was a member of the military. And they do the flag presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I mean, I, uh, one of the funerals was my grandfather's, and I sat there and, like, I was pretty good through most of the ceremony. But then when they started doing all of the military form and function, that got me so deeply because there's a certain weight mm-hmm. and, and honor that comes with some of these agreed upon rituals. There's nothing spiritual or mystical about folding a flag and handing it to the, um, the deceased's nearest of kin, but boy, does it mean something. It's a story that we tell deeply. Um, all those kinds of things. Uh, rule of life, silence and solitude in the lectionary. Um, those are all some things that we can get into. You definitely do some, um, some study about all that kind of stuff. Um, the lectionary is essentially the, um, the church calendar with the Bi- all of like the entire Bible broken down into, I think it's a two-year period. Um, and then you start the calendar and read through, and it, it takes you through a cycle of reading all of the scriptures um, systematically, um, and, it, and it lines up with the uh, lines up with the church calendar and everything, which is really fascinating and probably something that a lot of us should do. Again, none of these liturgies or forms or anything like that, nothing that we've talked about thus far, whether from the Protestant church, the Catholic church, any of those kinds of things, none of them are intended to be mystical or have some kind of additional power. They're tools that the church has used over the past 2,000 years to help believers grow. Um, And I think it's unfortunate because I've, not because I've grown up in a low church kind of standing, the difference between low church and high church being liturgical form, um, largely. I think we've missed out on a lot of practice of experiencing the gospel it's you'll probably use this uh, example um but it's it's when we we say that we're going to do something and then we don't do it we don't actually do it we say i want to i want to grow to be more like jesus and we affirm that in our songs and by coming to church but then we go home 
and we don't really do a whole lot to put that into practice, mm -hmm. right? Like these liturgical forms or these rhythms, these ideas, they're, they're intended to be practice-based. The idea of I'm taking the truths of the gospel and I want to systematically find a way to live them out, to exemplify them, to remind myself of them, to move forward with them. So this idea of liturgy or storytelling within the, the church can be a really, really helpful practice. A lot of information, um, a lot of history, but it leaves us, I think, with a really rich legacy of practices that we can utilize in our own lives, the way that people have looked at remembering and living out scripture in their everyday lives, and as a corporate body. Um, the church didn't always pray, do announcements, sing a song, do more announcements, have the pastor come up for an hour and a half. Pass the um, right, pass the bucket. Um, do two more songs and then say, see y'all at the pig picking. It didn't always work like that. I miss the pig picking. <laughs> <laughs> it was that Ben's church. Right? <laughs> Growing up. But that's what we sort of have come to associate with it. And we don't give any thought to, again, the story, what we're communicating through the way that all of that form and function goes. The benefit, I think, of some of these liturgical forms is that we have to think about it. Um, I grew up in a church where we did communion like once a month. I think that was like a common, common thing for a lot of like fundamental Baptist churches. Like that was once a month we do communion. Sunday evening service, huh? Once a quarter. Yeah, once a quarter sometimes. Yeah, totally. And then do it in the morning, and then in the evening we have our business meeting. Um, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with the Baptist Church. I just I grew up in that, and I have a lot of colloquialisms associated with it, so I apologize. Um, but that when we came to Emmaus, when Lana and I came to Emmaus, and they did communion every week, and it was an active part of the ser the service where I had to get up out of my seat and actively walk over and think about why I was doing it. Mm -hmm. It was so impactful. Mm -hmm. I, I still have to remind myself occasionally that that's why I'm doing it because it can become rote. Yeah. But that kind of, for lack of a better term, ritual, not in a negative way, but that kind of ritual can be an incredibly enriching tool if we let it. Mm -hmm. it's, <laughs> Jesus didn't say, do this so that you can be a good Christian and be awesome. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to think about me. Do this to remember my sacrifice. Do so that, that communion ritual is incredibly important for our spiritual formation because it causes us to pause and think. It gives us a Selah moment, a moment to stop and say, why did I do this? Or why are we here? And that to me is the power of using actively understanding and using a liturgy. You have one more. Oh. Um, just a general principle, I think, with a lot of this. I love this quote. It's in um, Eternal Current. Um, build, uh, build a longer table, table, not a higher fence. When we're dealing with some of these things, there are a lot of tools available to us that we sort of reject just outright because it's not how we grew up. Mm -hmm. And too often we build a higher fence when we really should be building a longer table, incorporating some of the things that can be helpful to us. If it's not helpful to you, don't incorporate it. Mm -hmm. We're, I don't know if anyone here does, but I don't believe that the regulative principle works. <laughs> if the Bible doesn't say it, you shouldn't do it. 
the opposite of that seems to be true. Find a way to make the scripture stick in your mind and live in your heart and use those things. So if a tool works for you, use it. If it doesn't work for you, there's nothing that says you have to use it. Um, but even when we go to conferences and all these kinds of things and you see these um, sort of pseudo-liturgy moments coming into play where someone uses like a word picture. I know at the women's conference a couple times they've done things like uh, there was a big cross with a bunch of nails in it for the last women's conference. I don't even know what happened, but I know that everybody has come back from it saying, this picture that they did was so wonderfully impactful. Yeah. It's, it's a liturgy. It's a liturgical moment. It's, a, it's a, a moment where we try to visualize and symbolize the truth of the gospel so that we remember it. Why would we not use as many of those as we possibly could to help, our, to help ourselves grow? Um, just because we didn't grow up that way. Um, it's challenging because it's un- it makes you unco- it makes me uncomfortable. I'm still working through a lot of things. <laughs> being involved in some of the situations that um, I mean, frankly, when I first came to Emmaus, I had never been to a contemporary service. So I I, know, I grew up with classical music and like hymns singing and the whole nine yards. And we came to Emmaus, and a lot of can tell you like I wasn't I wasn't opposed to it. I was just it was just unusual. Like it wasn't part of my experience up to that point. So I felt a little off, you know, with the the rock band up on the stage. I didn't have a problem with it. It was just unusual for me. So um, those kinds of things can be really impacting and and formative if we let them be. Yeah, and so that kind of brings us into the practical side of things. Finally, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is, I feel like twofold. Evaluating, looking at the liturgy that you're in, in whatever service you're in, in whatever place you're in, and then also learning to engage with it, no matter if it is exactly like your dream picture of a service or if it's a little bit different or a little uncomfortable. And the first thing I would say to make us more more educated, more thoughtful in a church service as far as what does the order of service look like is to evaluate the story that's being told. We talked a lot about this last week. But take something like um, this image I have here from Spain a few years ago. So um, just a little background. I've spent a good deal of time uh, in the northern Spain, uh, País Vasco, Basque region of Spain, uh, living with some missionaries there. And this was a particular weekly gathering that really impacted me besides like a regular Sunday church. So on Friday nights, I think it was, we would all meet up together at the church I want to say like five o'clock maybe and together we would prepare food and then together we would set out the tables together we would sit and eat and eat and eat and like no rush we would also sit down together and pray with each other and share prayer requests we would also sing we would also go outside in the street and kick around a soccer ball and all in all this thing ended up being like four or five hours long like can you imagine (laughs) So we're going to go to church today. It's going to be like four or five hours long for one gathering. And for, you know, if you look at something like this, you say, well, what's the story being told from this moment? Like, what does this say about God? What does this say about his church? It's essentially, for me, the things that were come up were like, wow, like community is not to be rushed. People matter more than having to be somewhere. And some of this is cultural, of course. But, you know, things like being together and serving one another and sharing, all those are beautiful things. So doesn't that tell something true about God and about his church? Then you can also have something like um, a negative example. Um, 
for example, I visited uh, a place once where it was a little of an odd situation. Again, talking about the uncomfortability. When, we, when I walked up to the church, there was a, a, a large SUV parked right in front of the church, kind of like as you're walking through the mall and you see the SUVs and the cars that are for sale. I was like, well, that's odd. <laughs> you know, come upon the church service. And um, there are so many wonderful things about the church service. But I distinctly remember at one point them, them using this as basically it became like a tool. They were raffling the, the car. So each time you would come, you would get a ticket. If you brought more guests, you got more tickets. And then you would hope that your tickets would be... Right, I see all of your guests. <laughs> Everybody's like, cringing right now. I don't like this. <laughs> but like, why? Because what does that say about God? Or what does that say about his church? Like, come to church so you can get right come to church so you can basically win the win the lottery in some way <laughs> you know bring people so you can get give so that you um can get something in return like so it's not it's not about that church it's not about like bashing some random church it's the idea is like when we look at these liturgies when we look at the choices that are being made we have to look at them and say like what is the story that is being told with this because you know they were trying to say Let's find any means possible right. to get more people to come Let's to church. Let's get people in church, which we're about. Which seems like a great thing. A great My plan. My church is almost doing the same thing the right misled. now. The they're, they're, they're like, hey, do you have any people who you know can be a good volunteer? Give us your names and we'll enter your tickets for like a nice sunglass right. raffle. Oh, okay. Great intentions. <laughs> Great intention, oh, no. but we always have to like zoom back. <laughs> oh, important. But we like we have to zoom out and ask like, well, what is this? What is this snapshot story? Like, what is the story that's being told about God? Um, so, so many beautiful examples, and it helps us also just to be thoughtful as we experience church liturgies. The second thing that I would say is helpful to think about. And remember that your way, our way of viewing a church service is not the only way, <laughs> as we've talked about before. So learn how to engage with other traditions by searching for the connection to the big story, a.k.a. the Bible, a.k.a. redemption, right, of the Bible. So in any specific moment that you're struggling to engage with, whether you're here at Emmaus or whether you're visiting some other church on vacation or something, you know, search back to, like, where does this come from? Is this supported by scripture somewhere? Is this referring to a story in the Bible? Where does this fit? Because we can appreciate it, even if it's completely different. I'm sure if you talk to any of the people that just came back from the Uganda trip, there's probably a whole lot they didn't understand that was going on during those services. Yeah. But why were they so impressed? You know, Why were they so connected in a place where they were completely removed from their normal comfortability it's because they were finding connection points they were finding things that oh i recognize this they're they're singing this way or they're acting this way or they're showing honor to god and how we're all unified because of the story of scripture and so there are ways as difficult as it can be sometimes um to shed off those old coats of just this is the way i've always done it to connect in services Another helpful tip, provided that what is being communicated in church service, not heretical, okay, burn that, your discomfort may not be a sign that something is wrong. It may be a sign that you haven't engaged with this idea or practice yet, and maybe there is more for you to discover in the way that you view and relate to God. This part is being is the more difficult side of things and the more uncomfortable side of things, because at times I think we can often, uh, you know, say, "Well, I feel uncomfortable, so that must be the Holy Spirit, 
or that must be a sign that this is all completely wrong and that I should run out of this church service and say, oh, never again. But perhaps, perhaps in those moments where you're uncomfortable or even in our own church where you like, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure how to engage here. I feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe take a moment and ask God, like, is there something more for me here that I haven't thought of you? Is there a way that I don't, something about you, God, that I haven't connected with yet that maybe I can connect with in a new way in this moment? Opening yourself up to that can be really exciting and refreshing. And lastly, give yourself an opportunity to experience other liturgies locally and globally. Um, these are a few of my photos from, from Spain, some of the beautiful places there. Even visiting a cathedral, if you're ever uh, in countries older than the United States, you'll walk in a place and yes, there may be years of you know, negative history or if you have a family history of dealing with different places, you may have some negative feelings toward different churches or cathedrals, but if you can walk in and look and see the beauty of God and, and think about how this artist, they were, they were trying to portray something grandiose about God or they were trying to be creative and use the gifts that God had given them to, to show us in a new way the character of God or the detail of nature that he created. There are ways to connect to those things and those things can be incredibly eye-opening um, to visit, to see, to... Uh, even visiting like another local church's service. We've been to other places, even with other Emmaus folks that had worship that was different than ours, just for the focus of like getting a different perspective and just to see like how a different culture or a different, you know, area, you know, worships or does their church service. Uh, you know, a lot of times we get this very like loyalist feeling like, well, I would, I would never like skip an Emmaus church gathering. And we love Amaze Church and we are loyal to it, but, but it can be really helpful for a moment to step outside, especially if you haven't for a good long time, and see like, how are they worshiping? Is there something here that, that I could engage with? Is there something different here that could be helpful for me? Or, or what am I so stuck in? What rut am I stuck in that I'm what not What story are they in? telling or how right. are they telling that story? Right, and how does that connect to the big picture of redemption? All those things can be really helpful if you're stuck. Um, and then lastly, hopefully the most helpful thing is learn to connect with the liturgy you're in. For example, I wanted to be really practical, um, which is just engaging with like the Amaze Church liturgy. And this is just a typical Sunday, some, some tips. We talked last week about storyline. When you're jumping into the songs in the service, look for the storyline. Watch for that arc, look where it's going, look for the messages and their combination, how they, how they work together. For the call to worship, that's always something that, um, you know, they don't say this is the call to worship now. But someone usually, if you watch for it during the beginning session, will stand up and share a scripture or they'll say, hey, Amish Church, this is, you know, a brief thing I want to share. Typically that's very, that, that has a plot, a spot on that storyline and that's important. And so what can you do there? Focus on the scripture being shared. Listen to it. Take a deep breath slow down and actually really receive the word. It's incredibly easy to go on autopilot and just, yeah, 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 I know that verse, right? Work intentionally. We know that our default is to go to consumer, right? That's like our culture. It's easiest to just consume, consume, passive, passive. So it is hard work to engage and to focus. 
during the teaching, take the notes, read the passage again at home, ask the questions, text in the Q&A if you're in the one o'clock. There are all kinds of ways to interact with it. If you're in an MC group, you talk about questions about it already during the year. Communion, Ben touched on this a little bit, um, but that Eucharist piece, I think we often, and we have kind of witnessed even the shift in amazed churches, habits with the communion. Um, so re realize the gravity of it. Just don't rush. Like I sometimes I just want to, you know, encourage the people around me like, there's enough bread for everyone. <laughs> you know, it's okay. We've got, uh, the song is probably going to be seven plus minutes. <laughs> we're pretty sure it's going to be a little slower. <laughs> you got time, right? And I think uh, a lot of times we're just so in that go, go, go mode. We're like, oh, I got to get up there because it's going to be a long line. But slow down. <laughs> think about what it is that you're doing. <laughs> it's true, right? That's um, funny. <laughs> watch. But it's We're not just like very it's Even to the point where we we forget to engage with the beginning and the ending of the services. Mm -hmm. Like, I know sometimes we're late, and that's horrible. Like, let's not do that. But when we're late, we miss the first part of the story. Mm -hmm. And then when we're really excited or urgent to get our kids out before everybody else gets there, and so we leave you know, before the last song or the last passage is spoken or whatever, we're missing part of the story. Right. And we do that with communion certainly all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's probably one of the most active, besides singing, one of the most <laughs> yeah. active parts that you can play during a service is saying like, hey, this is my time to remember Christ's blood on the cross. This is my time to say, God, where am I in your presence? Where am I, where, where am I blind? Where are my blind spots? What am I missing? What needs to be confessed? And I think a lot of times we, we just rush that. Like, hmm, do I have anything? Nope, good. <laughs> you know, we, we rush through. And it's really important to slow down and just ask the Lord, what am I missing? Where do I need to be humbled and to confess to you right now? And take the time and listen. Like, really, really choose to listen. Don't be a consumer in that moment. Be a thoughtful participant. What she's sort of alluding to is that it used to be sort of an understood part of the Emmaus liturgy, if you will, mm -hmm. that you didn't, that we didn't go to the communion table until the chorus of the first song. Yes. Right. So there was a certain, it wasn't, it was never spoken that way right. or decreed that way, but it was sort of the common practice for us to just wait a few minutes and yeah. think about it. And I think as things have gotten the church bigger, has gotten larger. Right. Yeah. It has felt more like we've got more people to get through, so let's just go. But yeah. there was this sort of wonderful, again, Selah or hush moment mm -hmm. where, we, where, where we were encouraged to confess and mm -hmm. to make sure that we were rightly related to God before mm -hmm. taking communion. Right. Um, again, not because we would be struck down in the moment, but because <laughs> that was a better story. Right. A better encouragement to think about. I'm about to go celebrate what Christ did on the cross. Am I living that way? Am I am I rightly related to Him in this moment? Is there some that, is there someone that I should make restitution to before I go do that? Those kinds of things. And then remember, the remaining songs are typically like in response to the teaching, the message. So, <laughs> with this one, I I've been thinking recently about how we get very used to the way things sound, right? Maybe like the first few songs are triumphant, the last song, the next songs are slow. We get just in a rut. And so often we can kind of, as soon as that sermon is over, as soon as that communion is over, we really start to, okay, now what's the rest of my day looking like? And we, we tend to lose focus at that point. So remember that what you're singing, again, is part of that story. And often the end can be <laughs> incredibly important. And the end is also purposeful in what 
uh, those that have designed this story want you to walk away with. I think sometimes I forget that as I'm wrapping up. Like, what is the last thing they want me to walk out with? Because it's important. It's not a filler song um, as you walk out. Even the benediction right. does that. And, and too, for me as a consumer, I have to remember, it's not always going to be a Red Bull. It's not always going to be like a, I feel great now. Let's go serve Jesus on my way out, right? There might be a different tone to it. There might be a more missional tone or like a sending song. It might be, you know, a more reflective. Really listen to the sound of it and the words that are being portrayed um, so that you can really absorb the message that our our church is trying to portray in that story. So I hope those are helpful ways to engage with liturgy. Uh, Dear Father, thank you so much for all that you've uh, taught us today. We love you. We um, praise you and we we pray that you would make us mindful of who you are, um, seeing who you are through new lenses, um, relishing you through our old lenses, and um, striving to grow and more grow more and more like you each day um, regardless of where uh, the truth of your word comes from and who has spoken it into our lives and we just praise you for all that's done in Jesus name amen Thank you.